Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 2nd. In today's news, Britain beats the U.S. in granting the Pfizer vaccine emergency authorization. COVID school closures worsen the achievement gap. And President Trump threatens to veto a defense bill unless a legal shield for tech firms is repealed. But first, the big idea. A Republican election official in Georgia accused President Trump yesterday of fostering violent threats. Gabriel Sterling, a voting systems manager for Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, was visibly angry and shaken as he approached a lectern in the Capitol in Atlanta. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. Sterling's public chastisement represents one of the strongest rebukes yet of Trump's baseless attacks on the election's integrity by a member of his own party. Sterling also demanded that the state's two Republican senators, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, denounce the threats that have been flowing into his office, including against junior staffers, since Trump began attacking Raffensperger for failing to support his false accusations of fraud. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. Trump responded to a video of Sterling's speech overnight on Twitter by reiterating the very false conspiracy theories that have fueled the threats and claiming again, with no evidence, that the Secretary of State and the Governor of Georgia, both Republicans, are trying to steal the election from him. Meanwhile, here in Washington, Attorney General Bill Barr said yesterday afternoon that he has not seen any fraud that could affect the outcome of the election. Barr's comments to the Associated Press, while caveated, make him the highest-ranking Trump administration official to break with the president on his false allegations, and they might offer some political cover to other Republicans to stake out similar positions. Barr says the FBI and the Justice Department have looked into fraud claims and couldn't find anything to substantiate them. At the same time Barr's comments became public, the Justice Department also revealed that the Attorney General secretly, in October, appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham of Connecticut to be a new special counsel examining how the FBI investigated the Trump campaign in 2016 and beyond, a move that was clearly designed and announced to hearten Trump and his allies, perhaps to prevent the president from firing Barr in the final weeks of his administration. The order to install Durham as special counsel is likely to ensure that his work is not shut down by the incoming Biden administration. Under Justice Department regulations, special counsels can be dismissed only for misconduct or other good cause, making it more difficult for the next attorney general to end Durham's probe. This news was cheered by Republicans and decried by Democrats. A person who spoke with Trump yesterday said that he was railing, including raising his voice, against the governors in Republican states, particularly Georgia and Arizona, who aren't backing up his claims of fraud and are proceeding to certify election results. This person told Josh Dossie that Trump nevertheless, even though states keep certifying, is unlikely to give up until at least after the Electoral College votes on December 14th. In the meantime, Trump's allies went to court yesterday asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling on mail-in ballots. 
And Trump's campaign yesterday asked the Wisconsin Supreme Court to overturn the president's loss in that state by throwing out hundreds of thousands of ballots in the two most Democratic counties in Wisconsin. Trump's recently disavowed attorney, Sidney Powell, filed an affidavit in Georgia yesterday from the longtime administrator of the message board 8Coon, which is the QAnon conspiracy theories internet home. In our newspaper today, a group of 25 former presidents of the D.C. Bar Association have an op-ed saying that lawyers should stop being complicit in Trump's attacks on democracy. They write, quote, no lawyer may seek on behalf of any client to subvert democratic institutions or burden the courts with claims that the lawyer knows are frivolous. Aides say that Trump has no plans to call President-elect Joe Biden to congratulate him or to invite his successor over to the White House or to travel with him to the inauguration or even to be in Washington for the transfer of power. Not only that, but NBC is reporting that the president is seriously and actively considering kicking off his 2024 campaign with a rally to be held during the inauguration. This is a break with lots of norms. Every losing presidential candidate since 1896 has offered a concession to the winner. That's when defeated Nebraska lawyer William Jennings Bryan sent a conciliatory telegram to Ohio Governor William McKinley, who won the election to succeed Grover Cleveland. Inauguration Day has often begun with a pre-inauguration meal at the White House. It's supposed to be cordial and non-controversial, though it hasn't always been. In 1953, following a spat over a missed meeting, Dwight and Mimi Eisenhower did not show up for the customary lunch that Bess Truman prepared. Inauguration Day also usually features a show of unity and a ride to the Capitol. That tradition dates back to 1837, when Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson shared a carriage. So far, only President-elect Ulysses S. Grant has refused to share a ride, prompting his predecessor, Andrew Johnson, to skip the inauguration altogether, making Johnson the third and last president until Trump to refuse to see his successor sworn in. The other two were John Adams and John Quincy Adams, who left Washington early to avoid celebrations after they lost to Thomas Jefferson and Jackson, respectively. Inauguration Day, of course, ends with the swearing in. Each departing president since Ronald Reagan has left a handwritten note for his successor in the Oval Office. It's hard to imagine Trump doing that. What the lame duck president is considering, though, is granting preemptive pardons to his children and son-in-law and personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani on his way out the door. The New York Times reports that Trump has told close aides that he is concerned that his three oldest of five children will be in legal jeopardy once he's no longer in power, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka, as well as her husband, Jared Kushner. So Trump is preparing to give them blanket pardons. But such pardons would not provide the Trumps protection against prosecution over state or local crimes that they may have committed. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, Britain's Department of Health and Social Care said that its decision this morning to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine follows months of rigorous clinical trials and a thorough analysis of the data by a panel of experts who concluded that it met the standards for safety and effectiveness. Carla Adam reports from London that the British government has already ordered 40 million doses. The first of those doses are expected to arrive in the coming days, starting next week, 
the vaccine will be made available across the country. On this side of the pond, a federal CDC advisory panel officially recommended last night that the initial inoculations here should be given to an estimated 21 million healthcare workers and 3 million residents and staff of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Residents and employees of long-term care facilities are prioritized because they have accounted for 40% of deaths from COVID this year. The committee voted 13 to 1 to prioritize those two groups. Helen Talbot, an associate professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University, was the sole dissenting vote. Lena Sun, who covered the meeting for us, says the unease over the recommendations centered on the inclusion of those long-term care residents. Several panel members said there is insufficient vaccine safety and efficacy data to support immunizing old people right away. Nearly 100,000 COVID patients are in the hospital in the U.S. as of this morning. Our country reported 181,769 new cases yesterday. 16 states reported record numbers of hospitalizations, and four states tied their highest days. Number two, well, Americans mostly kept classrooms closed, but bars open. Europe kept their schools open despite a second wave, but they did close their bars. The result is that they've gotten the spread under control far better than we have. It's been relatively safe to have their schools open, as long as they adhered to a now-established set of precautions, mask wearing, hand washing, ventilation. Schools are thought to have played only a limited role in accelerating coronavirus transmission on the continent. Those conclusions contrast sharply with the prevailing wisdom here, where public health officials have focused on low rates of positive tests in the broader community as a prerequisite for in-person schooling. And there's mounting evidence that this is taking a toll on our children. Our education writer, Perry Stein, has been following kids at a public charter school elementary campus here in D.C. in southeast, the poorest part of town. In March, 90 percent of the school's first graders hit their reading targets. Then when the pandemic hit and schools abruptly closed, teachers sent the children home with academic packets. The school remained closed, but the packets kept coming. The first graders became second graders. The six-year-olds became seven-year-olds. This fall, individual reading assessments administered in person highlighted the cost of trying to learn during the pandemic. All 45 second graders at this charter school fell behind, all 45 of them. Not a single student started this academic year reading on grade level. It was far worse than a typical summer learning drop. Some kids are reading at an early first grade level. Others slipped back to kindergarten or preschool levels. The 183 students in kindergarten through third grade at Achievement Prep are among the kids that education leaders fear will fare the worst from prolonged closures. 97% of the kids at this charter school are black. 70% are from families that qualify for public assistance. 13% are homeless. These students already fell on the wrong side of the achievement gap. And now they're falling farther behind. Number three. Late last night, Trump threatened to veto the annual defense bill authorizing nearly $1 trillion in military spending unless Congress changes the law to open the door for Facebook, Twitter, and other social media sites to be held legally liable for the way that they police their platforms. Trump delivered this ultimatum, calling for the repeal of a federal law known as Section 230, in a pair of late-night tweets that transformed a critical national security debate 
into a political war over unproved allegations that Silicon Valley's tech giants exhibit systematic bias against conservatives. Section 230 is a broad, decades-old federal law that spares a wide array of sites and services from being held liable for the content posted by their users. And in the process, the decisions about the posts, photos, and videos that tech companies take down or leave online. It's considered one of the foundational laws of the web, crafted in large part to facilitate free expression. Many lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, increasingly have come to question whether these protections are outdated, conferring legal immunity on big tech companies at a time when they've failed to crack down on hate speech, election disinformation, and other harmful content. But Trump and his allies seized on the debate to advance their arguments that tech companies should be penalized for being what Trump often says is biased against conservatives, a charge for which they provided scant evidence and one that tech giants have long denied. Trump has stepped up his attacks in recent months, particularly as the social media companies have taken more aggressive action against his more controversial online posts, including his tweets falsely claiming that he won the election. Trump's latest ultimatum arrives after he previously threatened to veto this defense bill, known as the NDAA, over a provision that would require the Pentagon to change the names of 10 military installations that recognize Confederate military officers who fought to preserve slavery. Trump has said that he will never allow that to happen. In fact, he grew irate when Defense Secretary Mark Esper, whom Trump has since fired, and Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy signaled openness to bases being renamed. Some Republicans in recent days have suggested a trade, reforming Section 230 in exchange for the base name changes that Democrats want, according to our tech writer, Tony Rahm, who's been on the Hill. But Democrats largely balk at that idea. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 2nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 